Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. Joined, uh, well, just like every other episode. That's right. I'm here. I'm still here. <laughs> Andrew Decker is I'm, here. I'm glad to be here. What What I'm really impressed with, though, is uh, this is the first time where I'm like casually dressed. You're in a lovely brown and blue sports coat. That's right. And, and our mascot, our, our mascot Winston the dog, is wearing a tie. He's he's got his tie on. He, yeah, he's trying to he's trying to keep it professional in here. He's trying to up up the game a little bit. I told him if he's going to sit in on this, he's going to have to uh, you know participate and act like a lawyer dog. So step it up. You know we've got the what the law hawk. We've got the 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 law hammer. The law boss. I'm sure there's a law dog out there somewhere. Well, they have that tiger law now. The 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 motorcycle people I've seen the commercials for. So you, you could you could be the 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 dogged attorney, I guess maybe maybe not. I don't know. Man. Let, let's move on to something you, more important. So our, our guest today, maybe <laughs> maybe um, you know Dean will have like a, a mascot or something for his for his law practice. But Dean Maizano is here, and I know we just went over your last name, but I'm pretty sure I just M- Mia Miazano. I'm pretty sure I just butchered the hell out of it. Sorry, Dean's here. Hey, Dean. Hey, how's it going? It's pretty good. How are you, man. sir? I'm great. Excellent. Well, welcome to a Friday the 13th afternoon. I know you don't want to be doing anything more than talking to us. Yeah, about work stuff. No, that's okay. I'm, I'm really happy that uh, you guys invited me on here. So, Yeah, so so my understanding is kind of the reason that, that we thought you would be a good person to talk about this. Is it true you've done like 100 or 150 DWI trials? Yeah, it, it's been over 100. I've, I haven't really kept track, but I'm... I, Quite, I tried to at one point, but it's it's about over 100 DWI trials I've done at this point. And how long has that taken you to accomplish? Since uh, 2009, when I first started uh, doing criminal law. So All I know is like pretty much every week, maybe not la- not last year when trials were shut down, but pretty much every week I'm I'm on the uh, scene on the listserv about you're in trial in one court in Tarrant County or in Parker County or another not guilty here, not guilty there. And so I think it was the last couple of weeks or so I told Andrew we got to have Dean on the podcast he's got so much experience this is going to be a great a, a great interview to have yeah yeah thank you appreciate it um, well, and- I, I think I had tried about 37 cases in 2019 and then I tried about six from uh January to February right before the pandemic I guess started and we all kind of shut down so it's kind of what 37 I mean, yeah, was- in 2019 yeah, that, that that's that's one that that's one that's one every other week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was a kind of a busy year, and uh, you know, it was, uh, one of them was a murder case too. But uh, yeah, it was a really busy year in 2019. But generally, I, you know, I tend to try a lot of cases, and um, but yeah, it's <laughs> usually up on that trial board in Tarrant County at least, um, yeah. kind of quite often. But. but that's awesome, though. I mean, we. Most of us as criminal defense, well, no, I mean, yeah, strike that to quote a friend of ours this week. Um, <laughs> there are criminal defense attorneys who do everything they can to avoid a trial. Yeah. And then there are criminal defense attorneys who are bold enough to not be afraid to go to trial. And please let me be counted among the second group. Let it be that I'm, I'm bold enough that I will go to trial when it's necessary and when it's needed and when I think that it might help. Oh yeah. yeah. So Dean, uh, that's kind of, it's not really why we brought you on, but that's a, 
that's an interesting question. Like I sometimes as a defense attorney struggle with having some clients who want to go to trial. So how are, what is like, what is your strategy? Are you evaluating a case and, and just preparing immediately? Like this is going to go to trial or is that just based on the facts of the case or client driven or, or what? Uh, you know, I, I think we have a, a lot of influence on, or what our clients ultimately decide. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, well, I guess we're here for DWI. So for DWI purposes, um, generally when I get a case, I, I'm pretty much up front with the client. I tell them, look, um, especially on a first time DWI case or even a misdemeanor rep. Um, and I, I kind of tell them, look, uh, I'm really not going to do a two tiered fee. Um, whatever fee I quote you, if, you know, after talking to them, uh, it's pretty much based on the understanding that we're going to try to go ahead and take this to trial from day one. And, um, you know, a lot of times, especially on a DWI, there, your, your consequences for going to trial are not that much worse off, if not better than if you just walked up there and pled guilty to it. So, yeah. yeah. And so I, with that in mind, um, you know, you can charge a higher fee, uh, but, you know, you're also doing a service to your client, even if the facts are bad, because ultimately if you set it for trial, I mean, it's kind of my general theory about the criminal defense is uh, if you don't get what you want, if you don't get what you want, if it's a case that's a third degree or below, then just set it for trial and uh, kind of keep the case going. Because generally speaking, the longer the case goes on, the better it is for the defense. And just an ex as an example, you know, officers tend to get in trouble too themselves or They'll get fired, and uh, you know, you know, at that point, if um, had you just kind of looked at the case and played it out quickly, then you know, the client, you know, wouldn't get the benefit of that later. And I think I just pled a DWI to, an to it was basically a traffic ticket because the officer got in trouble, and I was on the contest docket for about a year. But you know, I I generally don't like to plea uh, DWIs. Um, unless it's a really good deal. But um, yeah, that's kind of my general theory because there's not really a trial tax involved. You know, like if it's yeah. like a felony case or habitual, you know, yeah, it might, it might really cost you if uh, you don't take the state's 10 year offer and uh, you go to trial and your minimum is 25. So. Right. Yeah. At that, at that point there, the, the risk is so high as to the reward, but on a DWI first or, you know, or an A, you know, DWI, what what's the greatest risk you know really that they're going to get yeah. 24 months probation and the offer is 20 months probation right yeah and then sometimes in uh those pre-september 2019 dwis which i have a lot of those pending which I, what i used to do even on a bad fact dwi i would go to the jury for punishment and not apply for probation and um kind of ask for essentially a low jail sentence and it was also like a dual um benefit when in Vordire, you know, like on an over one five case, your minimum punishment at that point would be zero days in jail and a, and a $1 fine. So there's a lot of folks that can't uh, give that. And if they can't, then they probably weren't good for you um, on guilt innocence to begin with. So you yeah. get a better jury and it also increases your chances of winning a, a, a bad fact DWI or a case that you might have some bad facts on. So I mean, that, that, that's another example where, you know, generally it's better, you're better off getting a low jail sentence than take probation on a DWI. 
So yeah, yeah, because yeah. if you get a two for one or three for one deal, you can be done with a thirty day DWI in a week. You know, in a weekend. Right, and I'm just kind of trying to get for my clients what people around the courthouse are willing to do because you're probably not going to find a probation officer in the courthouse that's willing to himself take probation on a first time DWI or a second. You know, they would much rather do a jail sentence. Yeah, not Andy and that. I talk about it all the time that a, a simple, if you can do a do a relatively brief jail sentence, right. you may you may be way better off than trying to do uh, 18 months of probation on a DWI or uh, another class A or class B misdemeanor. Yeah, the last issue I had with that um, was the super fines. They, they took away the, the, the surcharges, but now there's a super fine and that's just a whole mess. Um, but my, you know, the state ended up agreeing to waive it with a higher fine amount, but right. there, there's still always the, the risk on a DWI jail sentence of a, what a 3000, I think is where it starts for right. DWI first. Yeah. And so that's going to be all your uh, post September, uh, 2019 offense dates that that would apply. So right. you, you have to, so it kind of changes the calculus there, gotcha. so, but, um, you know, still worst case scenario after trial generally is going to be probation, which is what they're usually offering to begin with, which is why right. I would try those. So how, how long have you been licensed? Uh, since 2005, I used to do, uh, I used to defend insurance companies and do civil work and you know, I got out of that and uh, switched into this. So this is a lot more, I think, uh, rewarding and fun than yeah. that was and just billing hours all the time. So, oh yeah. Yeah, I, I I couldn't do insurance defense. I know there's a lot of money in it, but I think uh, I think you're right. There's there's nothing like criminal law. It's right, the, it's the best. It is the best. Well, we brought you okay. on today yeah, yeah. Let's, to talk. Let's actually... um, you know, I, I've been wanting to ask you that for a long time. Actually, is is your just your record with DWIs? Like, what what makes you take so many cases to trial? That's that was interesting. Thanks for uh, indulging us on that. But but this is a DWI about, topic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, Specifically on retrograde extrapolation. Isn't that a punk band? Yeah, I think so. Okay. They're no good though. Um, <laughs> yeah. But Dean, what what is retrograde extrapolation? Well, what they are trying to do is um, get a blood or breath reading um, further back in time by using essentially uh, whatever the specimen your client uh, had, whether it's a blood or breath test. At some point, they're trying to backwards calculate what it was at the time of driving, since we are at time of driving state in Texas. So it's illegal to be above uh, 0.08 at the time of driving or intoxicated. It's one of the definitions at the time of driving. And so, you know, usually they'll, they'll get the test either an hour or two hours after. And so the, a lot of times the state wants to come in and uh, try to get their expert to testify you know, what it was at the time they were pulled over or detained so, or so why, time of operation. So. so why would they want to, to change the number, Dean? It, you know, if, if, if they do a, a blood draw or a breath test, those are the two main ways we get a, a blood alcohol content. Right. And it comes back at a, a well, if it comes back at a 0 0.09, right. are they going to want to try to change that? Yeah. Essentially they want to, you know, try to make the argument that uh, your client was, even more intoxicated when he was pulled over than he was at the time he took the test. And they're always trying to assume that he was eliminating alcohol, uh, you know, just from the time he's pulled over. So they want the jury to think, yeah, he, he was even higher at the time of driving and kind of buttress their case. You know, especially on, 
in like your 09 or 08 situations, they want to get the number higher to kind of help them secure a conviction. You know, if they don't, you know, if they're pretty weak on the subjective elements, like the not having normal use of physical or not having normal use of uh, uh, mental. So, yeah, it's, but again, that can be, or, or you, you try a case where, you know, somebody passes the breath or blood test, you know, they blow an 06 or their, their blood test comes back at an 06 or an 05 and they're still trying to prosecute them for uh, um, driving while intoxicated. So, I mean, it's another way they can secure convictions. So, so I know there's some rules of thumb as to, and I'm just asking the rule of thumb, but if, if I'm, if I'm, as a defender looking at a report that has a 0.09 uh, at the time of the test and it was taken two hours after, is there a rule of thumb as to what it, what it could be if you just use the retrograde, you know, we're not taking any other considerations? No, there's not really a rule of thumb. Um, you know, the, what the, the state's always going to try to do is say that the, uh, your client was eliminating and had hit, they already hit their peak at some point before they even got pulled over. And so the, all they were doing is limiting. So it has to be higher at the time of driving. And, um, you know, the, what, what you want as far as defending retrograde is you want recent consumption before being pulled over, ideally 15 minutes before you get pulled over. And you also want food sometime within the last uh, two hours of somebody getting pulled over. Even better if they just ate, then they got pulled over and they said, oh, I just left the bar, okay? Because if, if, if you're in what they term the absorption, absorbing part of that alcohol curve, then a lot of those experts, they won't, they can't do retrograde at that point, okay? okay. They're not, they're not going to do it if somebody's absorbing, if there's any hint that they're absorbing or the food is too close to um, that time of driving, and so that's when you're absorbing and that's when they, they, they just say, well, flat out, we can't do it. Um, other things when they won't do it is if uh, they don't have that time of last drink and they don't have that meal. And that's really the two things most of them need. And they'll say other factors like weight. Um, the case law is kind of all over the place. You know, even if the retrograde wasn't, they didn't have enough to do it on a particular case couple of courts of appeals said, well, that's harmless because, you know, they, uh, they had other, uh, indicators of intoxication. So it was harmless in that case. And then there's other cases that, well, that was, you know, that they shouldn't have done that. And we're going to reverse the conviction, but it's not such a bright line where you can say, Hey, look, they can't do it because of this. And it's, um, you know, like I think motto versus state is the, the case on retrograde extrapolation. There's a lot of factors they talk about, but Say that I mean, one more time. That case. Mata, ver Mata versus state. M-A-T-A. -A. Right. And, okay. Yeah, we'll yeah, put that, it in the show notes. Yeah, that's Andy one will. to read to get an idea of it. But you know, if you're, if you're well-versed enough in this and you kind of know what the experts will give you, depending on who they are, whether it's a technical supervisor or a blood analyst or even Dr. Johnson, like a, he's chief of, I think, toxicology at the uh, – Tarrant County Medical Examiner's Office. And a lot of times you can use um, that defense to get somebody below 0.08 at the time of driving and the experts will admit it, admit it themselves. I mean, every, geez, you know, I, 
most of the not guilties I've had, I didn't use an expert. I just used the state's expert to try to get them to, you know, put somebody below. And um, but yeah, generally you want that last drink to be um, pretty close in time to uh, the time somebody's pulled over. And ideal if there's food, because, you know, there's a lot of literature out there. You know, a lot of the experts, um, you want to read um, Garriott's Medical Legal Aspects of Alcohol. I think it's in its sixth edition at this point. There's a chapter on retrograde. Um, you want to read articles on, uh, done by Kurt Dubowski. Yeah. He's kind of widely recognized as the expert in this field. I mean, one of his articles, um, I think, you know, a lot of folks use it quite often. And uh, let me just, I had it here. And I, I actually take it with me. I, I got a little binder where I've got all the articles that, you know, I think I want to use. And this is a pretty famous one. Uh, absorption, distribution, and elimination of alcohol, highway safety aspects. And yeah, at some point, you know, he gives a range of, you know, 14 minutes to 138 minutes for somebody to fully absorb it. And if you can play with that timeline there, depending on who the expert is, and you can get somebody under and, you know, try to get somebody uh, to uh, admit that either they don't know or they could have been under at the time of driving under 0.08. And yeah. So, so basically, you know, let's just, we're going to run a hypothetical here that I go, I go out to a nice dinner for a steak at Benel's, right. um, which I'm known to do. And uh, I have, uh, while I'm having, having dinner, I drink a couple of drinks, but I've also eaten a really big meal. Right. And I finish an old fashioned right after dinner, but right before we leave the, leave the restaurant. Okay. There's no way that all the alcohol I've consumed has entered my bloodstream at that point. Right. Yeah. And, and so right. most of the experts would say um, alcohol that sits in the stomach, that's the stomach is an inefficient place for alcohol to get into your bloodstream because your caloric valve is shut down. And so it stays in your stomach. So if it's the food, yeah, if you were, if you were to, uh, um, eat a meal and that's why we have food introduced and a lot of the expert, I think Sarah Skiles will give you, you know, 90 minutes to, uh, you know, full 120 minutes, two hours for full absorption to take place. That, that caloric valve is shut down, can't get into your small intestine, can't get in your bloodstream. So, um, yeah, it, in that fact scenario, you, you, I mean, you could, you could delay that absorption as long as possible, which is what you want to do is try to delay the absorption or delay the possible absorption. There's other factors too. I mean, uh, and Gary Otts will spell this out too, that, you know, they'll, you know, smoking may delay it, uh, evening time, your body tends to, uh, be slower absorption as opposed to in the morning. Um, so generally retrograde is, you know, when the experts use it, you want to, that they hurt you, then, you kind of attack it with the inputs that they used. A lot of times it's gleaned from what your client says to the officers on the roadside. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, so what they that, that pattern you want. Yeah. If you're just leaving, it's still absorbing. The fact that you're stopped doesn't stop it from absorbing or arrested. Yeah. Absorption's ongoing. So, so really what we're looking at for those of you who haven't figured out, uh, before you ever take a drink, uh, you start at a zero, zero, blood right. alcohol content and as you drink and as you 
eat and drink and consume, uh, that blood alcohol content is going to go up to a certain point. And then at some level, depending on how much you've had to drink, how quickly you drank it, what else you've eaten, what else you're doing, you're going to hit your highest point of blood alcohol content. And then it's going to bell curve back down. The, right. and, so, and so what they're asking about is when the blood test was taken, two hours after the stop, were you going up the bell curve at the top of the bell curve or coming down the bell curve to decide if you were actually uh, intoxicated at the time of driving in the state of Texas? Fair enough? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. 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 And it, it kind of looks like a, and here's kind of where you got to back up to, you have to kind of know what the parameters are as far as what, what most experts think. And most of them will say, that there is an agreed upon average elimination rate, okay? Where if you're eliminating, it ranges from 0.01 to 0.03 per hour. That's kind of what the range they work with. Usually for extrapolation purposes, they're gonna, they're gonna use 0.015 per hour of elimination. But more importantly, when they're doing this, they don't know at what point your client was on that curve when he was pulled over. They can't know. And really, you know, a lot of what folks say on the roadside is kind of unreliable. And backing up further, there is no average rate of absorption. So from the time somebody consumes a drink, how long will it take for that drink to absorb so it can be manifested at a specific score? Like at, that number is so all over the place going back to that range, 14 minutes to 138 minutes, it could be, according to the Bowski, one of his articles. They don't know. I mean, that's it's completely highly variable. And that's what you use to, um, you know, essentially, you know, either attack the extrapolation or, you know, just use it uh, to your advantage and why it could be under. You know, why? And you want to be trying to put your client in the, uh, in the absorption, in the absorbing period of that. Okay. And, yeah. and, it, and sometimes you have to impliedly almost call your, say that what your client said to the officers on the roadside was inaccurate. Okay. Because what, what do, what do folks typically do? It's just human nature. You know, when an officer tells them what ones, when'd you finish it? They'll say, Oh, it was a couple hours ago before I got yeah. pulled over when that's probably wasn't the truth. You know, if they're just coming from either the bar or the restaurant or their friend's house, yeah, as we heard, uh, Andy and I heard this week, yeah, when they're getting cherry-picked as they leave the bar, they've driven two blocks and they forget to turn on their signal. Right. They probably haven't been sitting in an, a place that serves alcohol for two hours without having a drink. Yeah. For I mean, sure. they might have, but let's, yeah, be, let, let's, be, let's be smart about this. Yeah, and so that's when... Um... I think this is when we cross the officer on those two, you, you might use things like, you know, like going back to breath testing, it, you, you'll say, well, there's a reason why you wait 15 minutes before doing the breath test because you're trying to get rid of residual alcohol from the mouth, correct? Yeah. And so if there's alcohol in your mouth, you know, you're, you're, you tend to have stronger odor. Fair to say that? Yeah, they'll, they'll agree with that. And then and so you almost use the strong odor as evidence of recent consumption because it could have been mouth alcohol. Why it's so strong, officer, and then it kind of died down as the, uh, you know, as the night progressed and you were just, you know, <laughs> you're taking the squad car or 
taking him back to the jail, or whatever. And it was like, yeah, it's kind of, it kind of, yeah. you know, the, the odor kind of died down a little bit. So you almost use things like that to kind of argue it was recent consumption and heck, even better if there's an open container in a specimen case. That's brilliant. Yeah. Well, let's so, talk about too, um, you know, cause you and I were discussing the, the podcast and, um, and I think my, my not concern, but like, I've never had to bore dire on retrograde, but I, but I imagine you've had and probably, you know, 80 of the hundred cases you've, you've, uh, you've tried. Yeah. And so, um, you know, almost every specimen case, I will probably put a Vordar slide up there and talk about, I'll say, look, um, it's illegal to be above 0.08 at what time? So they have to prove it at the time of what? Driving, operation. And this is after you go through your burdens. And to kind of maybe conceptualize the concept uh, even better for fairness purposes, you know, I'll tell the jury sometimes like, okay, um, can you still be convicted of DWI if, you know, you blow 0.04? right? You pass the breath test or blood test and the jury will be like, Oh, what? And you kind of play this mental game. And he says, okay, why, why would you think that is? And then maybe somebody is eventually going to say it, say, Oh yeah, well, it's because that reflects the time of the test. And so that's how you, you get to convict somebody if it's a 0.04, because you know, if there's evidence that they are above 0.08 or something like that backwards at the time they're driving, then then you flip it and say, okay, well, it's only fair. There's no law that says just because you blow into the breath box that's 0.09 that you're automatically guilty of DDI. Why is that? And so you'll backwards state it and say, well, you know, talk about eliminate or how alcohol absorbs. And you know, I think George Milner did this one time in his board hour transcript. I've seen one of these and uh, he just kind of put out a scenario. Well, if I take five shots, all in a row, and then I go jump in a car, get pulled over, am I necessarily DWI? And then you just kind of talk about those things. And then you gotta, there's other ways to do it too, because you have to talk about that in Vordire. Like most folks, um, if you ask this as a question, you say, well, how many ounces of, you know, uh, let's say beer, wine, will it take you to get to 0.08? And, um, most people aren't going to know that. Yeah. Yeah. And so you just kind of couch it in those terms. I mean, sometimes you want them to know these things and sometimes you don't, depending on how you're going to attack the case. Because I mean, one time I got a girl that was a one seven blood. I got her below 0.08 at the time of driving from the expert. They acquitted her. But, um, yeah, it, it's harder to do for a male once if you kind of break it down and what, what that number really means. So. Yeah, yeah but it, it, it does become interesting, the idea of what were they drinking? When did they drink it? How much right. did they drink? Occasionally, you know, you'll have the person where they all admit, to, you know, drinking Bud Light or Budweiser or, you know, even a, a Shiner, nothing, you know, like real heavy alcohol. And they end up with like a 0.17 and you do the math and you're like, this guy would have had to have a 24 pack to be in. And, and you ask, officer, when did he ever need to use the restroom? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you have to build that in too because um, if you want to, for guys, um, the ounces become quite a lot on a one seven. I mean, if you, because, and then you have to, you have to back up and realize what what are the what's the experts think what it, what what does a drink mean like forensically, 
what they think. So um, generally, you know, as Dr. Johnson would say, one drink equals 1.5 ounces of an 80 proof liquor is equal to a 12 ounce beer as 5% alcohol is equal to a six ounce glass of wine uh, with 12% alcohol. So generally speaking, that's kind of what your drink is. And you convert that to ounces and then you, and it may be a little bit different subject, but that's a disconnect defense where, um, yeah, somebody has a one seven, you know, and that, in that case, um, I had, she was a female. So I, I chose to go the other direction and get her below, but if it's a guy, um, real heavy, then I will probably try to extrapolate that person, you know, as high as I can get them. You know, maybe I'll get them up to a 0.23 convert that number into ounces of alcohol. And uh, yeah, cause you got to play that up. Hey, alcohol is a diuretic. If you ever have to drink 144 ounces, just of water, probably got to go to the restroom and then you add in alcohol to the hundred. Then yeah. Then the number becomes quite big. Then you also have to build in, you know, somebody wouldn't drink 0.17 in one sitting. You know, it doesn't happen usually takes a while to get up there. So you have to build in all the, the tail end of the drinks too. It can get to be a big number for guys anyway. So that's like kind of your disconnect defense. And yeah, oh. you're, you're trying to go the opposite way, get that number as high as possible using that elimination rate that I was talking about. So you want to use the 0.01 to the 0.03 and you just tack on two hours per hour. You know, I like to use that 0.03 in that situation. So just tack on a 0.06 on top of whatever they got and then make the number more um, hard to believe. So like, is there any possible way this guy drank two full bottles of wine in the course of an hour and a half and isn't just, well, having to take a leak in the back of the squad car. Yeah. So right. yeah, you gotta make sure you watch all the videotapes of the hospital and make sure they're not saying, Hey, can I go to the bathroom or, you know, those kind of, yeah, but we've all seen them where they don't. <laughs> right, right. So that's how you make that number uh, more. So, the, so basically that retrograde, depending on what your facts are, gender, uh, time, what they've eaten, sometimes you want to make that number two hours ago seem unreasonably high because there's no way someone could have actually consumed that much. And other right. times you want to make that number lower so that they would have been home in bed before they would have been dwi right yeah that's correct um right but if you can get them below 0.08 depending on what your math is going to be then and again there's really no shortcut to all this you got to read garyotts you have to read all these articles um kurt dubowski uh, dr aw jones because every expert's different and if you think about it this way um like us as lawyers and we do criminal law we don't know everything about criminal law. There's, there's things that pop up that we have questions about, like, well, well I'm not sure about that. I, it's the same thing for any of those blood analysts. They're also these uh, breath test uh, technical supervisors. They don't know everything. And so if, you, if you've read enough of it and you kind of sound like you know like what you're talking about, then they're, you get them in that yes mode. And eventually, you know, they may not be sure about something, but because you ask it a certain way, they'll just give it to you and say, oh, yeah, that's, that sounds correct. Yeah. So, I mean, um, yeah, there's really no shortcut, but generally for retrograde to get somebody under, you want the, you want recent consumption, even better if there's food and 
Um, yeah, I had a one four blood test case and he was literally about 30 seconds away from the bar and <laughs> with refreshing candor, my client looked at the officer and said, you know, he asked them, when did you finish drinking? Just now. And <laughs> yeah. And so I mean, Dr. Johnson was in that trial remember, and he, 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 I said at one point, so he'd definitely be below 0.08 at the time of driving, right? He says, yes, he would be. And so that was a, I was not guilty, but yeah, it, the extrapolation stuff. I mean, if you can get somebody, it works and you've just got to know how to uh, get the, get the experts to say that. And really it, it's all set up in Vordire when you tell the jury, because it's not just, Oh, they blew over or test is over. Oh, they're automatically guilty. And now it's, they got to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Have you ever been in a trial where the state just kind of ignored retrograde and was like, here, this is the number, the number says what the number says, you, you interpret right. it however so, you want? Correct. So sometimes, I mean, they'll have the facts for it. Uh, like somebody will say it on the roadside, but the officer won't do the post-Miranda interview questions. Right. That formal one, that one's left blank because you just didn't bother doing it. Now, they might have it because based on what was saying on the roadside, they could have done it, but they didn't do it because, you know, they just looked at, the discovery that, oh, they didn't answer the questions. The post, so I don't have enough facts. And just going to trial without it. And they just put the number up there. So at that point, by the time the expert's sitting on the stand or the uh, that witness or this tech super, or they don't have any facts. All they have is the number and, you know, maybe some of whatever they use to say, well, this is a valid test. And, you know, for breath test operator to be the maintenance records. Yeah. So then you just you just do it yourself and you get in there and like once once they don't have it, then, then you kind of want to cross a little bit, tell them, you know, let them know that or more importantly, the jury, okay, well, this guy kind of knows what he's talking about, and then try to get that person under OA8 at the time of driving. And again, set up in Vordar. Because at the end of the day, on any DWI, what what is really your defense? I mean. I mean, it's not self-defense or necessity or anything like that. It's really the burden of proof. Fundamentally, it's the burden of proof. It's reasonable doubt. That's your defense. And and that's what you're trying to do is to, uh, in retrograde cases, especially for this subject, get that person under or make the number more ridiculous. So yeah. I like that. So so if the if the if you know the state's going to use retrograde, then you need to you need to know those numbers. Right. and adjust your strategy. But even if they don't use it, bring it in and, and adjust your strategy like this. It's either going to be way too high. Like, like, you know, you and Andrew were talking about to where he'd have to be drinking, you know, three cases of, of alcohol, or it's going to be under a, under a 0.08 and get their expert to agree to it. Right. So there's it no avoiding it in a DWI case. Yeah, there's not. I mean, uh, right. Or a DWI case with with a test, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you gotta attack the number somehow. I mean, it's easier. Breath tests is, breath tests are easier to defeat uh, than blood tests. Uh, blood tests, then you know, either make the number more ridiculous. You go batch processing, or the, they didn't prove that they uh, did this test correctly. Uh, breath testing. I mean, whether it's you know, the theory is essentially they're trying to get what's in your blood through your breath that's the original theory of breath testing and you know you attack it that way too that partition ratio and you, know, you just ask it where well even though this breath is over their corresponding blood score could have been under right just depends on their breathing pattern and 
yeah, most Sarah Skiles, at least most of them will give that to you. And it's like, yeah, could have been. Huh. And, uh, That's true. I've heard them. Yeah. yeah. And here, here's kind of a, a really important point on, on specimen cases. If you uh, attack a specimen or a breath test, blood test, and you want to tell the jury, you want to emphasize that uh, the only test on trial is this particular test, not all of the state of Texas. You know, nobody wants to believe that every single blood test or the entire blood testing program or the entire uh, breath testing program is uh, inaccurate and flawed. You know, they want, they, they, most jurors like trust it. You're just really trying to say that there's something wrong with this particular test. And you've got to emphasize that from board hour to cross to um, clothing uh, arguments, you know, and even I even ask the ex experts usually out of the thousands of cases that you've performed or analyzed or breath test that you're in charge of, you testify in very few of them, right? Yeah. So they'll give that to you. So you want to talk about that. You don't want to uh, make it seem like you're going after the, enti the entire system. No, that's not going to work. It's really just the uh, that particular test. So I mean, um, yeah, I think that's important for for any defender. Really, is is just remember your theory of the case. Don't make this bigger than it has to be. I mean, like right. doing that, attacking the entire. We we may all have issues with blood testing or certainly breath testing. But that's that that makes your burden as a defender, uh, you know, you know what I mean? Like, it just makes your job yeah. way too hard. It's impossible at that point. Well, and it doesn't sound believable. Right. You know, no blood, no breath test has ever been accurate at any given time. And the, the jury goes, no. Yeah, they'll start rolling their eyes. Right. Yeah, you can't do that. You have to attack this specific test, go with extrapolation or partition ratio, whatever, just it's this specific test and um yeah yeah and That's cool yeah and I, i've got a i mean george miller like uh he's got a he's got a way to kind of um attack specimen case on a ddvi case and i remember one time about what 2000 what 11 years ago i think i was about to try my first specimen case and you know and i i talked to him for about and he was kind enough to just call me one day, one evening. And he talked to me for about an hour about how he tries it. And I, you know, I've got a transcript subsequently. I got one of him, of his voir dire. And, he's, um, and so after I talked to him, I just said, okay, well, I got it. Now you got to, you know, they have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this wasn't one of the inaccurate tests that came out. And essentially that's what this voir dire boils, boils down to. It's kind of hard to explain. Yeah. But um yeah, so I walked into a breath test case the next morning, and two days later, it was like a four minute not guilty. But, and I, I've got it, I can give it to you. If you get, want to have some of your listeners email me, and you know, I can give you that transcript. George has already told me, go ahead, share it. I don't care. That's but awesome. If you, if you know nothing about specimens, right? Absolutely nothing. Just look at that board dire. It's, it's, um, depending it doesn't matter what your personality is and things like that i mean it's a <laughs> good way to kind of just repeat what he says and say okay well it's a good way to just prepare for a trial like if you don't have time to read you know all the stuff that gary Ott's and the, all the articles that you know the experts are supposed to supposed to know so well cool yeah that'd that, be it's great. been it's actually been really helpful to kind of rethink about what happens in trial uh, Andrew and I have been in trial this week and after almost two years off, it was 
it was you feel real rusty you know you just it, it's yeah. like it's like trying to go hit a baseball when you haven't done any prep up and you haven't swung at a swung a bat in six months it's just really hard yeah yeah it so is it's good to it, think about trials yeah well, it's, it, yeah and yeah oh i'm sorry go ahead i was gonna say but uh, we, we've now kind of run a little long so we, we like to ask our uh, guests some fun questions because we are more than just uh trial attorneys we're actually humans right. believe it or not <laughs> um so so dean what's your favorite band or musical artist uh i like george Strait. well then you are yeah. in texas so that makes sense yeah right. yeah it does but and, and it's tough to get stronger than that yeah that's true uh no. what about favorite book or one you're reading now or one you just recommend uh, I think I'm reading right now. Uh, I think a book by Malcolm Gladwell. It's uh, talking to strangers. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, it's I guess. So a couple to... of weeks ago on vacation, there was a guy in the pool reading that book, and so he's like waist. He's like shoulder deep in the water, holding the book over above his face, and you can see from a distance it says talking to strangers. And I want to walk over to him and go take away the book and go. Let's start there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, I like I like the way that guy thinks, Malcolm Gladwell. He's uh he's great. All right. Yeah. So what's the what's the best piece of advice you've been given? It could be personal or professional. Uh well, um you know, I saw that and I was I I, I was trying to think about something like that. I thought maybe, well. And yeah, I was just talking to my son about this, but uh you know, I think, you know, we're, as young folks, you know, and maybe even some of us, but uh, we're often kind of wondering, oh, what are we going to do? And I, you know, often say that, well, uh, you don't really choose a career. A career chooses you. And I guess that's kind of why we're here, you know. Um, I didn't really choose to do this, but it just kind of found me. And now off I'm running. And yeah, I enjoy what I do. So, you know, I was doing insurance defense doing civil work and now i'm doing this and yeah i'm having a lot of fun doing it it's great it's been great well i'm glad you made that switch yeah (laughs) for sure yeah it's uh it's been really great fun so so how if one of our listeners whether they're a defender or they need a good dwi guy uh we'd hope they call andrew and i but if they decide to call you dean or somebody needs your information to find out more about what you've told told us how would they get a hold of you how would they find you Oh, uh, you know, I, I'm at uh, the Medlin Law Firm. They can go there. I just Google that, and they can they can find me or State Bar website, obviously. But uh, good deal. Yeah, yeah. I I just hope um, I think more people should try cases, and you know, uh, really just especially on DWI. You know, it's not like a felony where you know there's a trial tax definitely there, but here there's not so much so i think more of us should be trying them and look i I think a lot of them are winnable even if you don't know the kind of like the technical aspects of it i mean um they're still winnable you know they are and i just wish more people would try them and you know i think uh the guys here at my firm too will gallagher and uh, matt peacock they just uh they tried a 0.33 blood test case maybe a month and a half ago and uh they got a not guilty on that so they are they are winnable okay and so i I just hope uh, more people try cases Um, yeah i think people look at those high numbers uh on the test the defenders look at those defense attorneys and um and i don't know if they get scared away but they're just like oh man i'm gonna feel like an idiot up there trying this case and 
we're just going to try and get you the best deal possible, you know, kind of deal. So, yeah, it, it can be intimidating to go up against a number and uh, an expert. And, uh, it is intimidating, but um, they are winnable. You know, you don't have to, like I said, just you can have people contact me and I'll just look at George Milner's transcript and you can kind of see like, okay, let me go ahead and try this. And, and it works. I will. And like, cause when I started my first breath test case, I knew nothing about infrared spectroscopy and, you know, any of those other, you know, I just kind of did what he did. And, uh, <laughs> to this day, it's still the fastest not guilty I've ever gotten. So <laughs> hey, that's amazing. It's a good way to do yeah. it. And we'll, yeah. we'll include your, you know, your contact information. We'll, um, you know, put the Medlin Firm's website on the show notes. Uh, so if anybody does have any questions, they can, they'd be able to find you and contact you directly. And, and Dean, we just want to thank you very much for your, for your time today and sharing a little bit of your oh, expertise with us. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. This is, uh, this is great. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dean. Uh, I'll owe you some uh, venison sausage next time I see you. Oh, yeah. So great. <laughs> Dean prefers spam, I think. Uh, yeah, I am from Hawaii, too. So, all right. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, sir. You be good. Thanks. All right. Later.